listening to part two of a two-part interview series with Gina Garcia and Christy Corwin. In our last interview, we uncovered an untold Hollywood story about a musical prodigy whose work was showcased by countless music icons all around the world, but whose identity was not always revealed. His name was Russell Garcia and his life story and legacy are amazing. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Now, the very first thing I want to ask is this. How did you meet Russell, Gina? Because I, I get the sense that there's an amazing story here. But before we reach that, I just discovered before we started recording this interview that his first symphony he wrote when he was seven years of age. Christy, tell us more. Yes, actually, we found in um, the archives of his of the music that there was a note that said Russell's um, arrangements or you know symphony at the age seven played by the Oakland Symphony. And it said that on the actual music. And so uh, it was quite astonishing, actually, um, for both. That's, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing just to hear a story like that, because immediately I think of somebody like Beethoven or Mozart, you know, somebody of that caliber, because yeah. that's what happened with those composers. So this is a modern day composer doing similar. Wow. Now, Gina, back to you. So how did you meet Russell? I'm dying to know. Well, I was out on a date and I loved to go dancing rather than to go to a movie. And uh, this one friend that I used to go dancing with called me and said, hey, would you like to you know, go dancing? And he said, we'll go to the Figaro ballroom where they've got a band that plays and we can, you know, have our dancing time. So I said, oh, great, I'd, I'd like that very much. Anyway, my date knew Russell. I didn't know him, of course, but Russell, interestingly enough, was playing in the band only for two months because a friend of his who had the job, who had the gig, he had to take his family on a holiday that he had promised, but he didn't want to lose his job. So what he did is he said, Russ, you used to play trumpet professionally. How would you like to just for fun, go back for two months to get, help me keep my job? And so that's why Russell was there. When Russell came to Hollywood, I'm going to say permanently, he didn't play anymore. He was writing mostly. Okay, now. so his focus was composition. Uh, yeah. So now during intermission, Russell later he said to me, Well, I saw you immediately, he said, and I knew I knew that guy. And I thought, that's my chance to see who this lady is. Anyway, at intermission, he came over and we were yakking and talking. And my date made a mistake. He went to the loo. Oh, for people who don't know that expression, that's an English expression yes. when you go to the toilet, okay? Yeah. yeah. And no sooner did my date go that Russell moved right in and he said, 
uh, you know, I'd love to take you to dinner tomorrow night. Would you be available? Oh, love at first sight. I, how about that? I, mean, I know, that was immediate. <laughs> and I thought, uh, I liked him very much because he had a great sense of humor. And I thought, well, uh, what about your job? And he said, oh, we'll just have dinner together. And he had found out I was going to university at night. And he said, I'll drop you off at the university and come to work. And I <laughs> said, oh, okay. <laughs> and that was it. And he picked, he picked me up just like he said he would. And we had a very, very nice dinner and we got to know each other better. Now, the funny part is uh, he told me how old he was, which was 30, three or 36, I forget at the moment, but we'll, we'll work it out, you know, chronologically. And when he asked me how old I was, I thought, oh, Lord, help me. I don't want to lie to him. What can I do? I was 17. That's you were 17. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I was very, very worried because I really dug him very, very much. And I thought if I said I was 17, he would, you know, disappear because after all, you know, he was a mature man here. And of course that, that's what appealed to me, but he was still so young and, and alive and just vibrant, a wicked sense of humor, really wonderful. Really I know I, I was just reviewing some videos on YouTube during the week and I saw him in one particular video. And listeners, go into YouTube and type his name in and you'll come across it. And I just saw the man himself being interviewed and I just got the sense that he was a character, but a man with a very good heart at the back of it, I would imagine. Very kind, very, very gentle human being. Yeah. Anyway, to answer him, I said, I didn't want to lie and I didn't lie. I said, well, I'll be 20 on December 4th, which was true. I just hoped that he would immediately think I meant that year <laughs> and not, not three years in the future. <laughs> and he, oh that's, exactly, that's exactly how he, he picked it up. And so we, we hit it off very, very well. And if, at first it was just mostly like dinner and um, it was interesting because a lot of things, I was raised in a very typical Italian atmosphere because that's where my parents are from. Okay. And uh, it's very interesting. We had very, uh, what will I call them? Traditional things, you know. That yeah, traditional had. values, I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And anyway, on my really 18th birthday, my darling brought me 20 long stemmed beautiful red roses and my folks weren't worried about that they did like him but they were very concerned I was getting very serious about him <laughs> and the funny thing was he also gave me a very beautiful wristwatch in the oh. Italian tradition in our family if somebody gives you what they would consider a valuable gift like that. Yeah. He's serious. Yeah. That worried my folks, of course. Yeah. And you, you won't believe it. We waited a long time because I didn't want to cause 
disunity in the family. We were a wonderful family, truly. Yes. You know, that I came from, I was, even when maybe there might not have been a lot of money for stuff, they always fed us well and gave us loads of love. The oh, Italians, that's a gift. They loved their kids. Well, everybody loves their kids, of course, but they focused so much that you feel very secure. Very valued. And you, want, and you don't want to hurt them. You yes, know? I know what you mean, so, yeah. So I was still living at home and I, I waited. When I was 21, Russell actually asked me then he wanted to marry me. And I went to my folks and I said, I know you're concerned that he was married before and he's so much older than I am. But uh, by the way, I confessed to him I was 18 <laughs> on my birthday <laughs> and not 20. But anyway, long story short, actually, he um, we waited. But I, I didn't see anybody else in those four years. It was only with Russell. And we got to be, um, he was welcome in the family, needless oh, to lovely. say. And they, yeah, they learned to love him. They learned to love his sense of humor and so on. So, well, yeah, his, so was, his own name, sorry, Gina, his own name is Garcia. So was he Italian as well? Were you both coming from well, Italian roots? Oh, yeah, he wasn't. But his background uh, from his father's side was from the Azores Islands, which are owned by Portugal. So it was oh. literally Portuguese on his father's side. Okay. His mother's side was was English, I think Irish, and I forget what all else. His um, mother is a, his mother's a descendant of Benjamin Franklin. That's right, from England. Yeah, oh in our goodness. history, that's very important. That, that yeah. is very important for American history, of course. Yes. Okay, so there was a big connection. Yeah. And there. Anyway, I got to know his family. I didn't get to meet his dad who had a great sense of humor, I understand. They were five sons, Russell was son number four, and anytime you were with that family, it was laughter and love and such joy. It was fantastic. Oh, that's such a gift that's in a family, it really is. talent and he was very fortunate his parents you know encouraged him but the one who was most important i told you russ was son number four yes so son number three was about i think six years older than russell so he became like a little bit of a mentor to help his little brother okay and and he brought russell <laughs> a cornet is like it's in the trumpet family, yes, yeah. just a different shape and mm -hmm. yet a, a different sound. And uh, he found one at a garage sale and he brought it for Russell because he saw 
this little kid, every Sunday when the, the New York Symphony Orchestra would be broadcasting to California. Back okay. in the, those days, you know, they didn't have their own orchestra. Yeah. But yeah. anyhow, yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> this brother Harry um, really kind of nurtured him, encouraged him with his music. And Russell actually taught himself to play on this cornet. That's amazing. So naturally, was gifted. Oh yeah, the whole family was kind of amazed because they said they couldn't find anybody in the family way back who yeah. was a musician. Just so a God-given like, gift? God-given, oh, definitely. I believe mm. that for sure. Yeah. And you know, he said he never was taught how to read music. He could hear it and he could sing it to you. You know, yeah, he just that, had a that kind of a memory. Just had a fantastic mem memory. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 And, very and so, good. <clears throat> it was very fascinating to get to know his family <clears throat> because they all had a great sense of humor, but none of, none of them were musical. Yeah, that you find out is there is somebody musical, and they never found anyone. That's amazing. One brother went back to the Azores Islands to try to trace their backgrounds and they couldn't find anybody musical there even so. I know because normally, I mean, if you look back to the story of Mozart, for example, his father was musical. Just one example, you know, that there is usually some kind of a connection somewhere. So really, that's right. Just, yeah, just a, you know, they, a God given gift. No. Yeah, a God given gift. Amazing. Now, yeah. something happened special at some point in his career where there was this rainbow house. Can you tell us more about the rainbow house? I believe there's a big story surrounding this in Hollywood. Yeah, well, the rainbow house, we both wanted very much because it was um, our desire to have a house up in the hills of Hollywood. We wanted to live in the Hollywood Hills where Russell had some property that okay. we could build on, okay? Right. Okay. Now, several of our friends had a wonderful architect called John Lautner. And we learned, um, we loved all the houses he designed, and we learned that he was like the uh, next in line. He was a Frank Lloyd Wright student. Okay. And he was like the protege, yeah. And every house that we saw of his was unique. Some were very simple, some were very fantastic, but everyone we saw, we were fascinated with. I know, I've and seen so, pictures of this rainbow house and it's so unique. It is very unique. Yeah. And I have to tell you, it was so unique. It took us many years, actually, it took us two years to get permission to build. Why? Because they have all these rules and regulations yeah. and everything about it was unusual i know the photographs even the shade the whole house no yeah fascinating you know but we loved it so we sweated out <laughs> to wait till we could get permission um everything it the rainbow house we called it because it was predominantly glass but the roof was an arc like a rainbow and what we did 
<clears throat> with the majority of the glass, you actually, from one side, you could see through the whole room, like of the lounge, the living room. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so what we did is we made colored panes, like the colors of the rainbow, yeah. every so often to make it look a little nicer, different, unique. Mm. <clears throat> and we just loved, uh, what's the word? Light, you just love the place. You just oh, yes. loved the place flooded with light and color. That's right. And we have a lovely uh, art collection. And even though it was very young and new in those days when we built that house, uh, with glass walls, you have. I know that that was a breakthrough, sort of very, yeah, I suppose a breakthrough way of doing building and construction. Oh, absolutely. It was very innovative. And I'll just say it, it was used in the movie Lethal Weapon 2. It was featured in the movie. Yeah. So it's a famous house. Yes. Oh, it is that. Yeah, it is that. Ultimately and famous. I, the people who own it now, they uh, still re refer to it as the Garcia house. Oh, we call that's it lovely. The house, and how many years? How many years did you live there? Let me see. We started in 58. Mm -hmm. It was officially built in uh, about 61. Mm -hmm. We It finally was built. But we had to fight all the time to get permits. We had a wonderful, wonderful, an Irishman, a builder, who used to do all the sets and things in the uh, movies, you know. And uh, Russell found him, and we asked him, would he consider being the builder for us? Okay. And we loved him because he was so also creative. Yes. He wasn't afraid of anything that was, you know, yeah. too different. He would just relish the challenge and the creativity oh, of it all. He, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, so it, it was a real wonderful experience. Well, I have to say it was an experience to build a house and to live in it, you know. Yeah, and I such hope, a, pre a predominant hope, house. There is a magazine, I think it's an Australian one, that featured it uh, a few years back, and it was considered one of the most beautiful homes in the world. Oh my goodness. They chose seven houses in the world. And that was and one. Rainbow House was one of them. I believe I, it was in, I believe it was in the Time magazine, and it was also here as well in the United States, Time Magazine. Just a, a, a very innovative building, showing new techniques and just utterly beautiful. Oh, fantastic. And it's still the, yeah. the people who own it now, they actually have tours <laughs> that really? go around. Yeah, people are fascinated with it.
Now, after the Rainbow House happened, you suddenly took a major turn in your lives and it's something to do with sailing. So how did that all happen? And I believe, firstly, you decided to go sailing and the next thing is you don't even know how to sail. So how did this all happen? Well, not only did I not know how to sail, nor did Russell. I think he had been on a sailboat, you know, uh, uh, you know, in his life, but I never had. But what, a, I, what, what attracted you to this whole notion of sailing? I mean, you're in this well, it, beautiful it home and... It was Russell's idea. I think it was a dream of being able to uh, go to do something like that, that was so wonderful, first of and all. And unique, maybe? Visit, yeah, to visit all these different uh, places. Plus the fact that we were Baha'is, we knew that wherever we went, we were going to find Baha'is and it would be fun to go yeah. to all these different places, different cultures, you know, different everything technically uh, yeah. in a little boat <laughs> and meet them. And that's what our so goal was around take me, the world. Take me back to this whole transitionary period because I'm just visualizing, I mean, it's a big move going from this amazing home that has really turned heads. And now you're making this huge decision now. Okay, we're going to go sailing. We're going to see the world. How and did it all evolve? To do that, we had to sell the house. Okay. <clears throat> well, perhaps maybe it's just a, a good lesson of showing we weren't so attached. Yes, to very it. true. Yes. Yeah, your possessions didn't that, own you. But every time we went back to the States, we would go visit it. Yeah, memories yeah, yeah because it was beautiful yeah and uh, but technically i had to learn how to sail because a, a swim because i didn't know how to swim okay you so, didn't know how to swim <laughs> i used to go to the beach yes all the time but it wasn't like i could go swimming like yeah. people go swimming. i know you know i go wet and dog paddle a little bit you know but i couldn't really say I would feel safe. So I took lessons. I took lessons on how to swim. My goodness. Yeah. My goodness. And you know what else I had to learn? <clears throat> Excuse me, is first aid. Yeah, very important of course for yeah. that kind of a, a journey. And, and as we got interested in this, we found other friends of ours who also had sailboats. <clears throat> and they would talk to us and we would go sailing with them. And, and show us a lot. I got recipes, for example, about special recipes cook. for the boat. On the boat, yeah, but I still cooked pasta on the boat. That's a great staple anyway. It is. And yeah. everywhere we went, when I wanted to thank somebody, you know, for helping us or, you know, giving us some of the lovely local uh, products they had, um, nevertheless, I always had them over for pasta. People oh, and I'm sure it is a treat. I'm sure it is a treat. So you got your sailing boat. You learned how to sail. You learned how to swim. So where did you actually sail? What part oh, of the world? But first, I have to tell you, when Russell first came home from Universal Studios, then he said, sweetheart, what would you think if we were to sell up everything and get a boat and go around the world? Oh my and visit all these wonderful, mysterious places we read about 
that we even can see movies about, but we've never been. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, honey, are you crazy? <laughs> you want to take me? I'm a real concrete girl raised in New York, I mean, Brooklyn. Yeah. And it was all, um, he, I'd never been on a hike till I met Russell. A really? Hike, never, never on a hike? No, never. A real a city girl? Oh, very, very much so. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. So, but anyway, the idea of being able to go to all these fascinating places did fascinate me. But I thought, oh, that's just, you know, like maybe a, a wild dream that people have. But I knew he was serious when for my birthday, he bought me a 30-foot trimaran. Oh, my goodness. And that was that. That was that. I knew he was serious. So yeah. that's how learn to sail and learn to actually love it, to be honest. Well, that's what I was just going to ask. Did you like it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Because yeah. I think there's, you know, it's like you have different communities. You, have you can't do it. You can't do it unless you do learn to love it. Yes. Really. Yeah. And there's a wonderful community as well in that whole arena of sailing. And it's just like the RV community. There's a wonderful community there as well. That's right. So yeah. where did you actually sail? Was it around the Pacific well, or the Polynesian Islands or where? Well, I wouldn't recommend anybody goes around the world in a 30-foot boat. So we started yeah. to look at bigger boats and, and we, we got hooked on trimarans because they were uh, very fast boats and they were much easier, especially, I thought, for beginners. Yes. And my first trip, we were coming, we used to work in Europe every year, music work, and one trip back, we learned about a company in England, um, can't remember the name of it now, but anyway, they were building Trimaran. And um, we had sent a letter saying we wanted to learn and find out about the boats they were making, because they were making Trimaran. And it was, um, well, let me see. We asked when we went, could we please go out on a, a what do you call it? Like a test on a boat. Yeah, a test sail. That they yeah. made and so forth. And I didn't realize it, but we actually got caught in a storm. But I felt very secure. I, yeah. I didn't know it was a storm, to be honest, yeah. because I, you know, hadn't been on boats Sailing that much. That. Yeah. And you don't go out in a storm anyway. But uh, it was, you know, we had some difficulties, but the guys who were, you know, showing us around and, and teaching us about the boat and sailing, they were very competent. So now after this storm, so to speak, we go in and we talk and we said we would give them a deposit on the boat. And when the guy who was the head of the company, he said, um, I can't take your deposit. You haven't had any sailboat experience. He said, you can't go around the world, he said, and not have any not experience. Have yeah. yeah, well, that made us aware that we needed to have a bit more experience. Yes. And then we were looking for who was making boats in America 
and I can honestly tell you, we were shocked. This guy gave us back our deposit Amazing. that we wanted to put on the boat. He, yeah. he wouldn't take it. He was thinking yeah. of your safety. Yeah. But we found this company in Florida. Okay. That was making boats. And we live in California. Right. So anyhow, we went out there to see it and decided, yep, yeah, we want it. And they were new. They were all making fiberglass boats, which is a lot less work uh, than a wood boat, even though I think the wood boats are more beautiful. I suppose uh, they're, they're lighter in the water too. They go faster. The fiberglass, well, would they? It may go faster. I think it just depends on how the boat is built and its okay. shape, you know. <clears throat> but we, <laughs> with a following wind, we could go 22 knots, which is impossible. That's very fast for a sailboat. Yeah, incredible, yeah. yeah. So what we did is we continued learning to sail while the boat was being built. And when it was, we sold up everything all our boat gear we put in a little trailer that we we towed back. Yeah, okay. And we sold the car and the trailer and all that stuff when we got to Florida. And uh, we set off on our And boat. may I ask, what ages were you when you decided to do this? Russell was 50. That was why he felt it was the... He was the now or never. Yeah, he was very fit. And I was very fit. I was about 35, I think, 30. Yeah, 35, I guess. Yeah. But it was a big adventure for us, needless to say. So everything, even some of the bad stuff, they were exciting to us. <laughs> Only because we didn't know you, enough. You just weren't experienced. Yeah. Now, yeah. It was like, uh, well, we thought it was great. But interestingly enough, to see how, as people, we can be tested. <laughs> we go out to Florida. We have the wonderful naming ceremony of the boat, you know, where you break. And we don't drink, so we broke a bottle of, uh, you know, juice on the, yeah. <laughs> on the nose. Of the no boat. champagne. No champagne, no, not, not for the Dawnbreaker. And we called her the Dawnbreaker. Beautiful name. It, well, we thought so too. It's a very special name also in Baha'i history. Okay. But anyway, we got this beautiful boat and we, uh, did all that we had to do and we're going through this long passage to get out to the open sea. We get out to the open sea, no problem really. Uh, and you haven't really yet put up your the sails. Yeah. yeah, you're still in, in the channel, so mm. to speak, before you get, get there. And we haven't been in the open sea very long and we see a little dinghy with two elderly people in it and they lost their oars oh, and they didn't no. know what to do. Oh yeah. my goodness. And, and, and yeah, and they were drifting literally out Yeah, to I know, sea. yeah, drifting with, yeah, with the tide. Yeah. So when we saw them, we, can't, you know, talked to them, went near to them. And so we decided we had to take them back. So that's what we did. We went all the way back again but technically, it wasn't a problem for us. At least we didn't think so. <laughs> anyway, we brought them back up. Everything was fine. We knew they were going to be okay. And foolishly, it's getting closer now to dark. We're start we went out again to sail. This was our maiden voyage. 
So you, you went out in the dark. You just didn't stay put. You just decided, let's go out in the dark. and That's right. Let's we have could it have waited till the next morning, but we didn't. We were anxious, of course, to go. And so we continued on out sailing. And then while we were <laughs> sailing, we noticed the weather was getting not very pleasant. And we were listening to the... Uh, weather report because you know you have all your radios that tell you what's happening and they were saying weather fine and we were starting to experience not such weather fine and we were getting a little bit worried and then we realized a hurricane was coming it finally was announced on the thing that on the that's, satellite radio yeah a hurricane was coming Ouch. And we knew, what are we going to do? We don't have any experience with any of this stuff, you know. And when the weather gets so bad, you've got to be sure to take your sails down and, you know, all that kind of stuff, batten down the hatches. They As say. they say, yeah. Right. But um, we had to heave too. We were under bare poles and we actually thought we should call for help because we didn't have the experience about what you do with all this stuff. But it was rough enough that even when they did send a boat, they couldn't find us for the, you know, some waves were like 40 feet foot waves, some of them, scary. 40 you know. foot waves, my goodness. That's so finally, scary. oh, it is very frightening. It that is. would be enough to say, <clears throat> I'll never go on a boat again for yeah. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But, and it's interesting because when we finally did get back, we had to be towed back by the um, Coast Guard back to, uh, I think they towed us back to Naples, Florida, where we could okay. tie up safe. Yeah. And we could watch from the upper story of the motel there all night long, which we did <laughs> to make sure she was safe, uh, you know. But the, the thing about it all was that we uh, we never really worried that we were like gonna die or anything like that. You, you just trusted the process, but you see, no, you, you I suppose- think, what can you do? That's the Yes, important. you're, you're solution-based, you're not problem-based. Yeah, Isn't that yeah. It? Yeah, and exactly. then you have your spiritual faith behind you, which of course is your comfort, I suppose. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we had to be towed back. And of course, we had uh, all kinds of things happened. Uh, the boom had cracked. The windscreen went flying out of the pockets. Yeah. Uh, and uh, before we got all the sails down, one of them did tear. All kinds of stuff like that. So now we, we have to put the boat back to be repaired. And we have to go back to Hollywood. Uh, luckily, Russell got a, a film score to do right away, and so we weren't worried about that. But you know how you were saying, um, you kind of sometimes feel like this is like what it's to test you. Yes, or, yeah, test your resilience and yeah. commitment. Yeah, that's right. And and if you work with solution rather than fear, yes. you're okay. Yes, yeah. I, I firmly believe that, you know, go for the solution. Well, first. we go back to Hollywood, right? Yeah. <laughs> and all our friends say, you see, that's <laughs> We story. told you so. Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
you wrote a book about all of this, didn't you? About I believe it's so. Here. Oh, there we are. Adventures, Adventures of, Dawnbreaker. of Dawnbreaker. So all of this, her stories are in this book. This is her biography, so to speak. Oh, Gina, beautiful. I'll have travel. to get that. Is that available on Amazon or somewhere? Um, not much anymore. It's available through us. And here she is. Right. Oh, Gina. <laughs> when she oh, was you were beautiful. I was, I was young then. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. But you're still beautiful. Oh, completely. Anyway, this is the book, and and you can get them uh, through me by emailing. Right, me. Adventures and of Dawnbreaker. Dawnbreaker, yes. Okay. And actually, the the copies I do have here, Gina has signed them, so they're signed copies, which is nice. That's special. That's special. Yeah. How many copies have you, Christy? Uh, probably about fifty or sixty, and then we will be republishing once those run out. Oh, that's that's a story and a half. That's that's a must read now for a summer holiday. And we have Russ, we have Russ's book too. This is his biography, and this is available on Amazon. I have hundreds of stories, and some of them true. <laughs> I can see the fun just right there. He's he's yeah. just got that you know yeah. glint in the eyes. They say beautiful. And this, is, uh, this is him with the time machine uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Listening to the music in the last episode, it still has relevance for today. I mean, the way that he scored it and created the music, I can see it's still relevant today. It's, you know, some music, some music that was created back in the 60s and 50s kind of has lost its sparkle, if you will. That's right. But it's, you know, it's still got it. Yeah. Um, actually, there is a, a, a dear friend of ours who is a dear friend of Russ and Gina. He uh, is a producer and he actually re redid the music. And remastered it? Remastered it in the 80s. And uh, he's done a beautiful job with all the artwork and the interview with Russ. And it's going to be a collector's edition. It's 23 pages long, absolutely beautiful color, done by one of the most prestigious album cover designers there is. Oh, and it's wow. getting to be, it's it's soon going to be re-released. So we will have those available through our website as well. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And your email address, Christy, is Christy at the Better World build, Found Build the Better World. Sorry, build a better world foundation dot, dot, org. dot org. And uh it will be a beautiful collector's uh edition of the music. And it's in high definition, the music. So
I, I have to say though, for a musician who knows about music or somebody who loves music and just loves the detail of melody lines and so on, to listen to his orchestrations are fascinating, how he pulled it all together. And I think even from a musician's point of view, that would be a fantastic album to have their hands on. Very you've interesting. Done a, you've uh, done a beautiful job, Sylvia, of incorporating uh, some of his music throughout this podcast, and it's just beautiful. You've chosen. Well, his, his, his music is beautiful. It really is. It sparkles. It really does. Now, to move on with your story, you got a Medal of Honor from the Queen, both you and Russell. So how did that turn around? How did that come about? That's, that's quite a long story, actually. When we uh, eventually uh, came to New Zealand to live, uh, we had been on our sailboat and we were in Fiji. Um, a big Russian liner came through, you know, these big tour boats that go around the world with a thousand passengers. And um, the orchestra that had, that was with this big Russian liner that came into the Suva Harbor um, was all Kiwis, New Zealanders, New Zealand musicians. And um, we weren't actually anchored. We were moored, which is like being anchored uh, in front of this very new fancy hotel. And they loved having yachts in front of the hotel because they thought it added a little bit of glamour and mystique. Luxury to, as well and all of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so they stopped in the, we were moored out in the bay and they stopped at the bar to have a drink. And while they were talking, they the bartender said, you know, uh, are you visiting and found out they were the musicians off the Russian boat and we're from New Zealand, and um, everybody at the hotel loved to Skype about Russell. He never did, but they would say, oh, we have a famous Hollywood composer here on his yacht, you know. Yeah, to I know. He was well, a celebrity. Saying that to these musicians, they all looked at each other and smiled, and one of them said, yeah, some guy who probably plays guitar. Oh saying, my goodness. <laughs> Not saying, knowing who they had. Well, yeah. So they said, what's his name? So when the bartender told them his name, they all were dumbstruck because <laughs> they had his textbooks. They had his records. They knew all about him. They were so excited that they said to the bartender, oh, how can we meet him? Can we get to, to see him, meet him? And uh, he said he was really proud now. <laughs> he got somebody else to fill in for him. Yeah, yeah. He got a dinghy and he put the four guys in the dinghy and brought them out to the boat. And uh, he was being very proper and very cute, uh, tapping on the boat and saying, uh, Mr. Garcia, Mrs. Garcia, would you allow some people to come aboard your boat? They are musicians from New Zealand. So okay. we got a kick out of that. And we said, of course. And so they came aboard. And I made chocolate cake always on the boat, by the way. Chocolate cake on a boat, imagine. 
I'm a big chocolate fan. And in my book, I've got recipes that I used to make on the boat. One of them okay. is my chocolate cake. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a fascinating one because you can do it without eggs, without milk, without butter, which when you're on the sea, you don't have much luck finding. Yeah, you don't have the space of a kitchen, yeah, obviously. Right. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's a wonderful recipe. And anybody that has tried it is still making it, using it years later. And they write to me about it that they're still doing that. Yeah. But anyway, it's while these musicians were aboard they, um, the boat, they, one of them said, gee, Russ, what would you think about coming to New Zealand and doing master classes at the university? Uh, we can do concerts. You can work with all the musicians in the country. We can go from, you know, north to south. And that's what they did. He did TV shows. He did master classes. Everybody loved him, needless to say. And, uh, and finally, uh, when we were literally finished with the tour, which was about eight or nine weeks that we were here in New Zealand, uh, the, um, one of the people that was responsible for bringing us over from Fiji in New Zealand, he had a, a music shop that sold instruments, but he was also a sailor and he had a sailboat. And every summer he sailed his boat, his yacht up to Bay of Islands in New Zealand. It was, I have to say, we had heard of it, about it, it was very famous, but we weren't going to sail to New Zealand. We were going to go on another route over the, what we would call over the top and come into uh, the Loyalty Islands, um, Lanumea, th those kinds of places. Yes, yes. Get on down New Guinea and eventually into Australia. We weren't going to come with the boat. Yes, yes. Anyway, yeah, the interesting thing is Russell uh, and I uh, said, well, that's fine, but we're leaving tomorrow night. It's our last it's Sunday night and we're flying back to Fiji. So there's no time uh, to go, you know, anywhere. And he said, yes, there is. You borrow my car. There was no, no air service at that yes. time. He yeah. said, you borrow my car and you go up there and at least stay the night. Well, we did that and needless to say, at that time, Auckland was cold. It was winter. It was toward the end of August sometime, I think. And uh, in fact, we had to borrow clothes when we got to New Zealand because on the boat, yeah. you know, yeah, practically. It's cold down there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, uh, we did do it. We borrowed his car and we came up. And there's one pass as you come up. It is literally, you come up a hill. And when you get to the top, the Bay of Islands all opens up and all these gorgeous little islands on the sparkling ocean. The weather was beautiful, by the way. Yes. It was yeah, gorgeous. I believe the scenery in New Zealand is amazing. It's amazing. You know, absolutely. And my darling says, let's get a real estate guy. So we drove down into Kerikiri and Kerikiri was one block long. It had like one real estate agency, one bank, 
one fish and chips shop, of course, you know, one grocery store, all very small little place, one block long. There was a guy in the real estate office and he said, we said, we would like to look at some property on the water because we have a boat and um, perhaps it may be a place for future, you know, we were just thinking future. Yes. We weren't thinking, you know, yeah. right now. And um, the, the um, what do you call it? The real estate guy said, oh, there are some very lovely places. And he did. He showed us to some very beautiful places. If we were smart about money, which we're not, <laughs> we would have thought, why don't you buy this for future or to have? Yes, as an investment. <laughs> Yeah, we, we had in our mind a picture. We wanted to, how do I describe it? We wanted to have a house on the water's edge with your boat out front. I know? understand, yeah, yeah, to have yeah. connection to the boat. So he's yeah. showing us around, this estate agent is showing us around. His name was Tom. And he said, um, we, he had us up on the top of the hill over a very beautiful bay and they were selling sections you know small parcels of land where you could build a house but it wasn't what we wanted we wanted to be kind of alone not i know what you mean in your own space yeah. as it were right mm -hmm. and even if you bought say two sections you would still be in a very busy kind of thing so while we were up at the, on this hill and he was showing us around some of the other houses he thought he might be able to sell to us uh, Russell looked across the bay and he saw just exactly, he said, what we wanted. He said to the estate agent, that house on the beachfront with a jetty and with a boat out front on a mooring, that's what we want. No other houses around. And the estate agent said, forget that. That will never be for sale, he said, because the guy who owns it is an Auckland businessman. And he's got, I don't know, maybe four or five kids, he said, and they won't let him sell that place. It's their summer home. So away now we go back to Auckland and um, I have to tell you what happens there because it's unbelievable. A Baha'i friend, her name I have to tell you is Beryl Vandervaart. No, Beryl Keck Harden was her name. Earl Carden, um, she said, called us and just, oh, Gina and Russ, it's your last night. Come on over for some tea and some natter. And we thought natter was something you ate, but we were stunned to find out it was only yakking. Yes, chatting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had to yeah. learn a lot about those kinds of things, but it was fun anyway. So she said, come on over, it's your last night. And we said, oh, that's okay, we'd like to do that. Because then what we did is we packed everything got everything ready to go uh, to the airport tomorrow. And when we got there, we were doing nothing but talking about the Bay of Islands. And she said, uh, when we said we couldn't find anything we liked, she said, gee, you know, my brother Bob has a beautiful place up there. He just bought a property, uh, uh, a business, uh, he, he, she said, in Rarotonga, in the Cook Islands, he might be ready to sail it. And it's a very, very beautiful place. And I have to tell you 
the estate agent said, that property belongs to a businessman by the name of Bob Harnish, okay, who lives in Auckland and it's his holiday home. So we erased it, right? And she says, my brother Bob has a place up there and it's very beautiful and it's on the water. She said, um, he's probably going to have to sell it since he bought this business in the Cooks. Okay, so we got him on the phone. And sure enough, it was the Bob Harnish that oh the my goodness. said would never be for sale. The, the dots property. connected. Yeah. Wow. But, well, when that happened, we thought, oh, dear God, are you trying to tell us something? <laughs> you know? And it I mean, you're, we'll just say this now, you're in New Zealand today. Oh, As I are. speak to you now, you're yeah. still in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, we're citizens of New Zealand. We've been here 50 years now on paper, but we had to still, you know, go and work yeah. a lot. Although Russell got a lot of work here with all the famous yeah. Kiwi people, uh, you know. But any, anyway, no plane service up to here. So what are we going to do? How are we going to go to see this property? Because we had to go fly out the next night. Russell had a great idea. He said, let's call the Aero Club. It's Saturday night. They'll probably be having a party. And sure enough, we looked up the Aero Club and we found that we would be able to go up to the Bay of Islands privately on this little plane and back and still manage to catch our plane. My goodness, all the dots connected. It was unbelievable the way it all worked out. And what we did is we took all our stuff to the airport that was going back to Fiji. We went to the little place where the little planes were mm. and he flew us right up and he scared the life out of us, believe it or not, because he's land, he's aiming at a paddock full of sheep. Oh we my, aiming at a paddock full of sheep. Although they'd run fast. Oh my God, he's going to kill not us, but we were thinking the about the, all those poor sheep. <laughs> and But it's uh, something they do here, the little planes, because they there is no place to land except the paddock. It's such and a so, different world, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. So yes, yeah, the sheep all scattered. He turned around and he came right back and landed. And there was the estate agent who wouldn't believe that this property was going to be for sale. My goodness, what a story.
isn't it amazing gina though that when you're living in your some people call it flow they call it the zone or their purpose how that just it flows and life just connects isn't it amazing when you're in the right place at the right time and you have to know that and feel that yes yes you do yeah yeah you do so he took us he took us to the place you know the estate agent uh we only had time it was a good 40 minutes away drive from Kiri Kiri, but when mm. we got there, it was paradise. Yeah. Just absolutely beautiful. The house looked a little haunted then because you know how it is in winter time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, kind of gray. But and anyway, we were delighted that we could, and as it turned out, we thought, you know, it would just be the house and the beach, and the, the, it was 13 almost 14 acres of land oh my goodness loads of space yes yes and we thought oh boy how are we gonna cope with that and as it turned out it worked out fine we were able to still afford what we wanted to do and we had to get a lawyer though because in in new zealand a lot of i have to say americans were buying beautiful land on the waterfront and then putting up no trespassing signs. Oh, I see. And that yeah. that's a real no-no here, truly, because people are the water people. They love with their just boats, the freedom of accessing their boats and water. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so the New Zealanders were beginning to resent that. So mm. it wasn't easy. Plus, we were over age to get, you know, what we would call residency. Uh, but it all fell into place. Well, you're still there, Gina. You're still there. Actually, on the way to this house, there was a little, uh, a Maori school, we called it, because it was predominantly catering to Maoris who live down in the bay. And uh, it was just a primary school. And we saw this little school and we thought, oh, isn't that a cute school? Maybe we should go in and see if we could uh, give them uh sing with the kids yes, you know yeah walked in and we met the principal and he was all for it you know he thought it would be great so we made it a time and all this kind of stuff and um the kids not only loved it the principal was thrilled because he said oh the kids will really enjoy this and they will learn from it now we thought my goodness he's taking this so seriously 
we should have some kind of a program that we want to work with. So we came up with this life skills idea because we decided we would uh, teach, uh, and we weren't official teachers, needless to say, so it wasn't like a paid job, but we decided we would teach virtues, but we wanted to make it like uh, pleasant for the kids. So we figured a way where we can have songs, uh, games that they could use that were creative, uh, you know, to get them to think outside the box, so to speak, a little different. Yeah. And we found, we started to do raps, would you believe? Raps? Raps, yes. <laughs> about virtues, about virtues, raps about virtues. We have and this was, before, this was before rap was... Was the thing, was that thing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, the kids loved what we were doing. And when the principals had a little bit of a conference, he spoke about this wonderful thing that we were doing. And the next thing we knew, we had two more requests from primary schools in Kiri-Kiri asking if we can go and do our program there. We wound up with five schools. Yes. a week, which was enough, really. Um, and the kids loved it. And, you know, they would go home and teach their parents what we were teaching them. Isn't and it that beautiful? Yeah, 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 it is fascinating. Like when children get so enthusiastic about some, you know, something that they're learning, they will go home and share it. We loved kids, needless to say, and they could feel that. And they yeah. loved us back, you know, so it was wonderful. So yeah. how did the Medal of Honor come about? Because of the work we were doing. Because of that work, you got school, it. But because we were using music as well. So yeah. we each got the uh, Medal of Honor. It's actually called the Service Medal for the Queen. Right. It's a very beautiful one. We each have one, uh, Russell and I. And um, what happened was people in the area who knew what we were doing uh, they thought it was fantastic. So they applied for us to be nominated for these services. And I'm just curious about New Zealand. We don't hear much. I'm here in Ireland, but I don't really hear much about the Maori people and how they're getting on in contrast to, in inverted commas, modern civilization. Are they integrating okay into modern civilization? Because oh. I know there's indigenous peoples across the world that are struggling in various ways. I mean, there's plenty of stories surrounding all of that. So how is that evolving in New Zealand? Well, it is evolving, but it's been a long, hard road for them. But yes. luckily, luckily, they have the advantage that no other people have had, like the American Indians, the Aborigines and people elsewhere, you know, that word, I'm going to say taken over by the white man. Yes. And causing their, what do I call it? Not just their cultural and their society way of, of living. Um, Degregation, I suppose, to a point. Giving it, yeah, not giving it much, yeah. But yeah. in New Zealand, uh, we have good groups working uh, we have people who are dedicated to teaching the language to keep it alive. We oh, that's have... wonderful. Oh, it's very great. It's very exciting. Because, I mean, Indigenous peoples have so much to give us. 
I mean, they've so much wisdom, haven't they? Oh, my goodness. Incredible wisdom. And I love the idea of family because that's very close to how I to was raised. To your own story. Our culture. And, uh, oh, yeah, no. Uh, we got on great with the Maoris from day one. We had no no problem whatsoever. And uh, and they, they, they liked us. They used to invite us to everything. And I was absolutely honored when my dear darling passed away that I had a request from the Marai, which is where the Maori um, special building is, and a lot of Maoris were living, to put the, con the casket uh, for Russell on the Marai. But in Baha'i, we don't embalm the dead. So we bury right away quickly. My darling passed away on Sunday, I buried him on a Monday, and the Maoris contacted me after he was buried, but I said to them how much I honored it, and I know Russell also would have been and is aware of the fact that they... It must have been hard for you. You know, you had such a strong connection as a couple together and such an interesting life. It must have been it was. such it a was hard process to get through. But I've got a very positive way of looking at life because I have to give behind that credit, but I do, and it enabled me not to feel like I'm separated from him. I don't feel that way. Oh, that's I, great. Oh, it is. You're, con you're connected to him every day. Every day. I see him every day on my computer when I turn He's it there. on. <laughs> He's there. He's there. I've got his picture on my computer. into the creation of a foundation. I'm wondering, Christy, could you tell us about the foundation? It's called Build a Better World Foundation. So firstly, why was it created and what is its focus? Um, well, in 2013, um, Gina, my grandmother, contacted me and she said, um, you know, I, I always called him o Opa and Oma. And uh, she said, you know, Opa left me this list of things for me to take care of um, that he wanted me to do when he was going to pass on. And she said, and I've completed, you know, some of them already, but I'm wondering if you would be interested um, in helping me to uh, carry on these things that his request. And um, I was the uh, first grandchild and uh, very close to them and even though you know I would usually see them once a year once they left on the sailing trip they would still come back once a year 
Um, they traveled about six months out of the year, usually around the world for him to do work. And, and then they always stopped in the United States. So um, I was very honored, of course, and I was so thrilled and happy um, to help her to complete, you know, some of the rest of the things on the list. And we began to work together and we formed uh, the for-profit first, Build a Better World Productions. And we started to engineer some of the music and we published uh, my uncle's books, one of his science uh, books, quantum physics type books that he wrote. He was a genius in his own right. And um, we re-engineered some of the music and we um, connected with the publisher of, of my grandfather's biography. And then I connected with the publisher of uh, Gina's biography and began to work together and then um, formed the nonprofit because they did so much humanitarian work around the world and did so much with schools and children and, and giving donations and giving their time and being of service and working with youth and young people in choirs all over the world when they would travel around. And so we formed the nonprofit, Build a Better World Foundation. And um, we began to produce, uh, I began to produce concerts that would help create um, awareness about other nonprofits and, and support other nonprofit organizations. It also, um, empowered youth and young people in music where we would feature them performing. We oh, were also, um, also honoring existing composers and arrangers. You know, they don't get a whole lot of recognition, composers and arrangers. And so we were- That is true. That. that is actually very true. Yeah. In, our, uh, in our concerts, we were doing that and we did quite a few and were able to raise funds and then donate money and um, and then uh, one of the, the main things on the list was that Gina and Russ together wrote a musical called The Unquenchable Flame. And uh, one of the things on his list was to produce that musical. And so uh, Gina had been trying to do it in New Zealand and it, it hadn't really come to fruition yet. There was some interest, but um, I began realizing, oh my gosh, you know, we need to do this in her lifetime while she's living so that she can be a part of this. So I started reaching out to some musical producers and it, it like you said, in the flow. Yes, it just happened. It just happened. And then I worked, we had a producer and a music director and uh, we had a director and a music director and a costumer and and I organized the whole thing. And Gina came here from New Zealand. We worked together. Um, we had rehearsals every day. So we ended up having seven performances. Seven. That's, uh -huh. that's really good. And uh, we've submitted it to Broadway. We're hoping to find out this May if it gets chosen as one of the eight new musicals uh, to come performed in New York. And um so it was a very exciting time. And so we've, we've continued to work together and now we're with uh, COVID and everything happening, we weren't able to do live performances and concerts, but um, I've begun to work on a documentary film uh, about Russell and his life and also Gina and including all their 
stories and we have some interest, but we're still, you know, receiving uh, proposals and we're looking for uh, the right circumstance and situation. It's it's an incredible story because it's it's the story that would really fit a full film feature. It's, yes, it's got that that twist and turn to it that engagement There's you know so many aspects to their life incredible aspects and so i mean to think so what scary. really interests me is suddenly he's a composer in hollywood then he builds this amazing house and now there's this turnaround to go sailing next thing they're in new zealand <laughs> i mean that's the stuff for a film and a their life is film. so purposeful and it's such a beautiful heartfelt story and so well that's it i mean you could have somebody else having a similar story but if the heart isn't in it you know it doesn't have the same meaning so it's it's a and wonderful then, uh, story we're also, we're also working on producing a concert here in uh, hollywood hopefully at the hollywood bowl which is where russ performed many times as a conductor and with ella fitzgerald and louis armstrong and we're hoping to uh, do a concert there within a year um, as well. So we're, we keep going, you know. And yes, but I just get the sense from, you know, stepping back and speaking from a musical perspective now, his music still holds a very strong sparkle to it. A lot of people, if they heard it again on the stage, they'd fall in love with it. It's got that sound because mm -hmm. in the last episode, last week's interview, when I was going through the music in depth, the the capacity that he had to arrange with such interest that, you know, your ear is so tuned into what he did as an arranger, that just if you're a person that loves music and you're into music, there is so much interest and so much beautiful melody lines and instruments coming in and out with such delicacy in many places. It, is, it isn't harsh at all. It just beautifully melts in together. So, yeah, his music deserves to be brought out and to be kept out on the stage, to be honest. So, Christy, where can people reach out to you or learn more? What is your website or? Um, Buildabetterworldfoundation.org is uh, the website. And, and the email for email reaching out to you? Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y at buildabetterworldfoundation.org. And, um, you know, we'll be happy to correspond with, with anybody who has any interest in any of the things that uh, you so lovely, uh, you know, interviewed us about. So. so it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I've really enjoyed learning about the whole story surrounding Russell Garcia. He's a, he's an, he was an incredible man and may his work live on, to be honest, because it's so filled of spirit and purpose. That's what you know, really grabs me. Every, behind every successful man is There's a always a special woman. lady. A so special lady. Gina, Gina Garcia is behind yeah. all of it. Well, she's carrying the flame and may she carry it for a long time to come. Yes, so, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> a pleasure to have you both on and it's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you so much, Sylvia, truly. Thank you.